You know, throughout the month of December, it's really common to hear people talk about the Christmas spirit. And, and I hear that and I wonder, well, what is the Christmas spirit? Uh, now, it would be easy to give a religious answer, and, and, I, and I think that it should be centered around Christ. And, uh, but even what's interesting is that you hear people that have no religious belief talk about the Christmas spirit. And well, what is the Christmas spirit? And how do you have that if you don't believe that it's really centered around the birth of Jesus Christ? I ran across an interesting article recently, and it talked about some of this. It was a secular article. It wasn't written from a Christian perspective at all. But it found in studies that people on the whole tend to be far more positive, far more joyful in, throughout the whole month of December uh, than through any other month of the year. And so, you know, they found that very interesting. And so they were trying to explore why this was the case. And through the study, uh, you know, through some research, what they concluded. Now, again, this was totally secular. And what they concluded was that the primary reason was that during the month of December, most people spend a lot of time thinking about other people. Just practically, we think about you know, our family, our friends, and, and what they would like and what we can do, and we spend a lot of time at, you know, putting forth effort, getting things for them. And what it was saying is this whole idea of being other-centered is something that is at the core of lifting up the spirits of, of everybody. When we, the more other-centered we are, the more we think about other people, the, in a sense, the more joyful that we will be. It improves our own spirit of joy and of happiness. Now, if Christmas joy is, is, you know, if we can look at this even from a secular perspective, and I think, again, it's, 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 we're going to see that it's not just secular, that it's all tied back into the story of Christmas. But if we look at this and if we say that, that there's an element of Christmas joy that comes from focusing on other people, then how do we nurture that? How do we develop that? Again, even unbelievers, that's true. The more you focus on other people, the more that you discover the joy of Christmas. Um, now, you know, even in, in this, just as an illustration, it's not that this proves my point to be true in any way, but I, I thought about that, and you could see even secularly, stories in the secular culture kind of affirm this. So you think of the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, and the whole picture of Ebenezer Scrooge is here's a guy that was totally selfish, and in his greed, you know, he was completely miserable. But then he somehow woke up on Christmas Day and he found the joy of giving, the joy of generosity. And at the end of the story, he's filled with joy. He's filled with the joy that he gives to others. And so again, we would look at this and say, well, if we want to discover that joy, and it's not going to come through ghosts of Christmas past and present and future coming to visit us, where do we find it? And here's where I want to come back and say, although that from a secular perspective, we might say, well, it's being other-centered. Well, we're going to find the ability to be other-centered by going back to Jesus Christ. Because it's the focus on Jesus Christ where we learn that. And that's what we're going to see here in this passage that we're looking here in Philippians chapter 2. Where Philippians in chapter 2, it's saying that we need to look at what Jesus Christ has done for us. And then in response to that, in response to being loved, in response to his example of humility and self-sacrifice and of love, that teaches us to show love towards other people. Look at Philippians, if you have your Bibles, Philippians verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And, and we're going to see right there that it starts with this call to show love, but it's a call that it's not just, okay, here's what you have to do, but it's a call to show love in response to love. Verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ and any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, it's talking to people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, who, who understand, in this case, not only what Jesus has done, not only have a belief, but have a personal experience of that belief. They have that relationship. And to followers of Jesus, he's saying this, if your faith in Jesus means anything to you, if it really gives you encouragement, if it really gives you hope, if, it really, if you really have been moved by the sense that you know how much you are valued by God and how much he's loved you, then the result of that should be that you should then seek unity with other people. You should seek a spirit of relationship with other people that comes from unselfish love. That should be the natural response of people who experience the love of God is that we become more loving. Now, again, even in this, I can... I acknowledge it's really easy to talk about being loving and unselfish, and, and in this season in particular, I think we often use those terms in very vague concepts. And what I, what I really find, I don't know about you, but what I often find experientially is that I'll have people that will lecture me about how I need to be more loving, and they seem to be the most unloving, most selfish people that I know. Uh, you know, and, and so we sit there, and we often get preached out about that, and, and, and the thing is, is that how does it happen? Well, people define love by their own standard. And it's like, well, here's what love is to me, and you've got to do it this way. And so I want to say, okay, well, if we want to really be loving and other-centered, well, what does that look like? And well, we go right here, and we see that, that he defines it. It's not just a theory. It's not, well, be loving. No, no he describes what it is. And, and he says, again, if we're to have this other-centered love, it, it describes what it looks like. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a heart of generosity that comes from other-centered humility. Again, now look at Philippians verses 3 and 4. Look at how it describes what this love looked like. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, it calls us to humility. But even in humility, I, I've got to say, humility is probably one of the most misunderstood traits. And, uh, you know, oftentimes when I hear people talk about humility, they think of it, you know, as well as having a low view of yourself. And that's not biblical humility at all. And think of it even this way. Here we're going to see Jesus as presented as the ultimate example of, of humility. But what did Jesus think of himself? He thought he was God. You know, that's a pretty high view of himself. Now, it was accurate. He was God. But the fact is, he didn't have a low view of himself at all. But yet he is the example of perfect humility. Because humility is not about having a low view of oneself. Humility is, is, is something very, very different. It's, it's, it's not that we think lowly of ourselves, it's that we think little of ourselves, meaning that we're not thinking about ourselves all the time. It's not a low view of ourselves, but it's that, it's that we're not the focus of our own thoughts. So I want to tell you, in my own experience, again, I've interacted with people who have incredibly low self-image, who are totally self-focused. And all they think about is themselves and, and how other people are looking down at them. And, but the fact is that they're totally self-focused. And, and all they may have low self-image, the fact is, biblically, they're not being humble at all. You see, the people who are truly humble aren't the people that have a low view of themselves. Actually, I believe you need to have kind of a healthy view of yourself. You need to believe that you have something to give to other people. It's just not that we have a low view of ourselves. It's humility is that we're thinking of other people. We're other-centered. We're other-focused. 
And look at again at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, consider others more significant than ourselves. It's not that we think of ourselves lowly, it's that we think of others highly. We focus on them rather than ourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's not that we ignore ourselves, it's not that we're, you know, that, you know, that we don't ever think, but it says, look not only to our own interests, that's natural, but that we also think of others, that we think of others as much as we think of ourselves. Now, for some that are struggling with even the, the low, low self-image, I want to encourage you that this whole passage is going to help you even understand not only what true humility is, but it's going to help you understand that you are of incredible worth and value because that worth and value is something that is given to you by God and it's declared here by God and how valuable and how loved you are. And that will help you, again, know how to be able to, to give to others. And how do we do that? By looking then to the example of Jesus Christ. And not only the example, but it's something even different. It's, it's something even deeper. You see, because it's not just something, when, when he looks, look at what verse five, it says, have this mind amongst you, which is that yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe how Jesus loved us, his humility and love towards us. And, and again, if all we see is this as an example, as well, here's what Jesus did, and we need to do the same thing. Uh, it's often presented it that way. I wanna tell you, that's not, I think, what is being taught. And if that's what was being taught, I, I would read this and I would get really discouraged. And the reason is, I can't do this. I'm not this selfless. If I look at the example and say, well, now you do it. You know, here's, you need to, you need to perform this way. You need to, to do what Jesus did. I'd get discouraged because I'm going to look at all the times that I fall short, all the times that I'm, I'm really not that person, all the times that I struggle with my own selfishness. You see, it's not an example primarily. It's, it's actually something that he says the example and the model is not just what he's done, but how we have been loved. See, this, when we look at it just as an example, that's a religious message. Here's what you have to do. Here's the moral code you have to perform. And the Christian gospel isn't about religion. It's about, not about our performance. It's about understanding and accepting what God has done for us. And his message is here is not, okay, this is what Jesus has done, now you do it. No, it's, this is how you have been loved. This is how God has loved you. Understand that, embrace it, accept his love. And as you understand how much you've been loved, that will give you the ability to show that same kind of love to other people. So let's dive into this passage and see what it teaches about how we have been loved, about this, this model that Jesus Christ has given us, this model of humility and love. And it's incredible. Look at verses 5 through 8. We're going to see, you know, this first description of the whole thing. Uh, Have this mind amongst you yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Now, the first thing that it states here is that right off the bat is something that we celebrate, the primary thing we celebrate at Christmas, in that Jesus Christ, who in the very form of God, he was God. It's not that when Jesus was born on Christmas Day that we're celebrating a, a really special baby. 
really special person. You know, this wasn't a baby that was born. It was God eternal, the creator of, of heavens and earth, who took on human flesh. God became man. It's, it's something we often call theologically the incarnation, and it seems like a big word, but it just really means you know, the taking on, God taking on human flesh, God taking on flesh. And so here you have Jesus taking on God, and it says that we've got to start by understanding that and understanding something about what that means about his deserved status and rights as God. See, if we want to understand the humility of Jesus, the love of Jesus, we've got to start by understanding who he was and what he willingly gave up. And what does it say? He was in the form of God and did not consider equality with God to be something to be grasped. It says that he, in the form of God, it, meant, it means that he existed before creation in pre-incarnate state. He was God eternal. He didn't, his, his existence didn't begin at birth. No, he had created the world. And it existed for eternity past as God and informed God. Literally, it says he was the essence of God. It was everything that he was made up God. It's, he, he could even, it's even a stronger way of saying it than saying he was God. It actually is stronger than that. It's the strongest way that it could be said. And it's saying you know, that Jesus Christ was God. He didn't become God. He was God eternal. And this is something that is, again, taught throughout the Bible. It's taught throughout you know, look at John chapter 1, how John begins. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. Or look at Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And so what does it say? That he was God eternal. He was the creator. And, and so Philippians, when it talks about understanding Jesus, says let's go back and understand who God was because again, you can't understand his love if you don't understand where he started and what he willingly gave up. Now, even in this, there's, a, there's an application. You see, one of the things that when we look at our own lives, why is it that we have a hard time treating people well? Why is it a hard time we have a hard, you know, that we have a hard time treating people that treat us difficultly? How do we, why do we not love them? Because deep down, there's something in us that, that cries out, I deserve better. You know, you don't understand. I deserve better. They, you know, I can't believe what they did. I deserve to be treated a better way. I deserve to be served. But here's what I want you to realize. If there's anybody who ever deserved better, it's God. And I, I look at it and say, do I really deserve better? Do I, do I really deserve more from this person than what they're giving me? Well, if there's anybody who deserved everything, it was God. Have you ever thought about just what Jesus' existence, what it means that he was God eternal? Have you ever taken a moment, you know, when we're just saying how great is our God and we just reflect on that was eternal Jesus that we're thinking about? Even in these passages we wrote, wrote a moment ago, it's really clear. What does it say? That he was the creator of all things. I love what it talks about in Psalms. It says that heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Well, let me even take that for a moment and do a little demonstration and go kind of almost more into the science realm again. And, and to try to say, okay, let's reflect for a little moment on, on creation, on the, on the heavens and how they declare their glory and what it says about, about God. Okay, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, I'm gonna build a scalar, scale model of the solar system, all right? 
And so I've got, um, I've got, if, if, can you come and help me? It's, okay, what, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you, you're, you're the anchor of it all, okay? So you've got to get this just right. And so I'm going to have you hold the sun. Okay, now I've measured the sun. Now it's really hot. It's really, no, no, it's not really hot. But okay, if you can hold the sun, okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to go, and here's, this is the scale model. The scale is six inches represent one million miles, all right? So if we were to build the solar system based on that model, this is the, roughly the size of the sun. We're going to go out, I measured this out a little earlier, and I'm going to get Jim to come out, and he's going to help me with, with the first planet. The first planet scale model, it's a grain of like raw sugar, um, and that's mercury, okay? And so it's right here, and you're, you're right about here, okay? Okay, and then the second one is Venus, and... Um, and Venus is right over here. And so who's going to help me with Venus? Okay, it's, Venus is a, is a pinhead. It's so little, I have a hard time getting it out here. Here there. Okay, Venus is a pinhead. I wish they were bigger that it could have come out. There you go. There you go, there's one. Okay, and then we go to Earth. Okay, David, can I get you to be Earth? Now you've got a big responsibility here, okay? Okay, this is Earth right here, and don't drop it. Just right, right over here, if you get too far away, then we're gonna freeze, okay? So it's just, he's got, he's got the whole world in his hands. Okay, don't drop it. Now if there are those that are in the balcony, you can't see me, we're about like a little over halfway back. Okay, and then if we keep building, now you look at this, and this is a scalar model, and if you keep building, we're gonna go all the way back to Mars here, and Mars is all the way back here, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you Mars, okay? So, and it's just, it's, it's actually a little bigger than this grain of, of, uh, of sugar, okay? Now, now, here's our scale model. Now, the fact is we can't fit the next planets in, because the next planet is Jupiter. If we were to go Jupiter, we'd be looking at something a little bigger than a golf ball, and it's going to be down at the stairs by the gym, all right? And then if we wanted to go Saturn, Saturn's a golf ball, and Saturn is all the way out here at the edge of our property, 446 feet away. And if we want to finish the scale model, the scale model is going to finish, and we're going to have to go all the way out to Wendy's to get to Neptune. The edge of McDonald's is, uh, is, is Uranus. And, uh, you know, so, so that's the scale model. Now, now, I want you to think about if this is the solar system, do you know where the next star would be? Alpha Centauri? Okay, based on this, you know, we'd have to actually, actually go outside of Ohio. It doesn't fit in Ohio. In fact, we're going to have to go out of the Midwest because it doesn't fit there. The next star was 2,100 miles away in Los Angeles. That's the next star. And I want you to realize that in that, that's the next star, and there are billions of stars in our solar system, and there are billions of solar systems in our universe and you know what the Bible says about this? If heavens declare God's glory, look what it says in, 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 um, in um, Isaiah chapter 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in a scale and the hills in a balance? You know what it's saying here? Here's God. Here's God eternal. Jesus Christ said, here we've got the scale model of the solar system. And Jesus said, well, how big is the solar system? Oh, it's this big. The universe, it's this big. The next star is 2,100 miles away. 
The whole thing is this big to him, the span of his hand. And the God that did that came down to this little pebble. This little tiny pebble, he came down to this little tiny pebble and became a person, not only that, a baby who lived on this tiny little pebble. Now, that, now if you want to talk about being amazed what the incarnation means, what Christmas means, I hope that does it. You all could sit down. I'm, I'm going to get my, you know, my planets back. Uh, I, think I, have an extra, I think I have an extra mercury, so I'm good on that one. And, and thank you for helping with us on it. Didn't burn your hands? Nope, you're good. Thank you. Thank you, for, thank you all for your help. Isn't, isn't that amazing? You know, when we look at that, we, we think about these and we read these things, but if, it's amazing. This idea that, this, that God eternal, the one who measures the, hollow, the, the you know, solar system, you know, he came on this little tiny, little, little tiny pebble, and he became a baby. And it's only if we properly understand his divinity can we understand everything else. You know, it's only if we properly understand what it means that he took on human flesh. I'm going to adjust this. I'm sorry, I got wrapped up. It's only if we understand that that you can understand everything else that happens. You've got to understand where he started. And so if you understand that he started in his divinity, that he for existence was God, and then what does it say? Well, then he goes down into this process of humbling himself. He willingly let go of the prerogatives of that deity. Verse 6, who though he formed God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness. When it says he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, it doesn't mean it didn't consider it something he had to reach for. It means that it's something that he had, but it didn't consider it something that he had to hold on to. It means that he willingly let go that which was always for eternity his. And he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And when it says that he emptied himself, what it's saying here is it's not that he gave up his divinity. It's not that he stopped being God. No, no, he was God throughout his whole time. But he gave up the exercise of the prerogatives of that deity. And so when you think about that, here you have God eternal, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, who is being praised and worshipped by the angels for all eternity, that have never known a need. And he comes down, and he's born not, I mean, he comes down not as a person, as a baby. And this God who has never changed and never had a, a sense of need, suddenly now he's crying for food. Then he needs his diaper changed. That this God who knows everything now has put himself into a humanity where he's learning and where he's growing and where he's experiencing pain. My, my friends, these are things that are just mind-boggling. And when we look at this, we've got to say, okay, what's that example that he's giving us? If we understand how we've been loved and what he's done for us, do you understand that what it's calling us to do is to saying, hey, we, we didn't start as God. We, he deserved better, do we really? And even if we think we do, when we look at what he's willingly give up, are we willing to do that in our own relationships? You see, here's the problem. Is it too often we think that, that the goal of life is my own satisfaction, and so therefore I, I value other people by how well they're making me happy. You know, the, the purpose of my life is to maximize my own comfort, my own satisfaction. We see this especially in marriage. I hear people all the time, well, she isn't making me happy, he isn't making me happy, and, and I'm driving, you know, cop, hopping out. Why? Because we define even our marriage as it's all about me. And if it's all about me, then what is my spouse's role? Well, they're here to make me happy. They're here to serve me. And if they aren't making me happy, if they aren't performing, well, 
well, then, you know, why should I stay in this? Because it's all about me. Or, you know, well, you know, I took, I did this, I did this, it's, it's their turn. I've tried and it's their turn to do it because again, I've done my part, but now I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be treated better. I deserve better. And if we struggle with that in our marriage, we struggle with that in our relationships in the church, in our, in our workplace, in our community. And what we look at is to say, no, if you really want to understand real love, if you really want to understand true, true love, other-centered love, and the joy that comes with it, you see, we're never going to find it by making it about ourselves. And as much as we might think I deserve better, we look at the example of Jesus who did deserve everything, who deserved better, and who willingly gave it up to serve us. And why? Because it was, he was pursuing us. He was ultimately coming to seek sinners. And it's not until we understand that we let go of our prerogative of, of letting go of what we think we deserve that we will ever discover what true love is and we will ever discover the true joy that comes from that love. Now we continue in the example of Jesus. He emptied himself and then he who was the creator then took on the limits of creation. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Here you have God who is a creator of the universe, who measures the universe by the span of his hand, coming down and coming onto this little tiny pinhead of a, of a planet that's in the middle of nothingness. And the creator enters his creation. This eternal God comes into and knows the limitations of time. All-powerful God becomes a baby who's crying to be fed, who needs his diaper changed, which is just amazing. This one who had been seated on the throne in heaven now is born and laid to rest in a feeding trough in a, in a barn. This one who was surrounded by angels who were worshiping him now comes to live a life where he will be rejected and mocked and ultimately tortured and put to death by the people that he created. And it's not only that he came and he took these limitations of a man, but it continues on that, that he became a lowly servant. Being emptied himself uh, uh, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Why did he come? When we say this, what does it mean? Well, why did he come? Why did he take on humanity? He came for the purpose, and the Bible's really clear, to be served, to be worshipped as he deserved? No. And we see that illustrated in the humility starting from his very birth. Why did he come? Matthew tells us, Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That his whole life was one of self-sacrifice, of service, of ultimately, the ultimate act of service where he literally gave his life and took on God's wrath for himself so that we may be saved. He gave himself to meet our greatest need. And even in that, why, when did he do that? You ever thought about, Romans talks about this. You know, when he loved us, he loved us when we were rejecting him. He loved us while we were sinners. See, I want you to think about who are the people that in this holiday season that you're like, oh, I don't want to see them. You know, the people that you have difficulty with, the people, um, okay, well, let me ask you again, why is it? I deserve better. Well, look at the example of Christ. He served us. He gave himself for us. Why we were his enemies, why we hated him. 
what would happen if you tried to serve them, if you tried to be kind, if it wasn't about what you deserve, but I'm going to lay aside what I deserve, and I'm going to try to live out the example of Jesus. And what we've got to see is that when we look at these things, we're talking about, yes, theological truths, the incarnation, and what it means that Jesus came in humanity. But I want you to see it's totally practical. It's totally practical. And it's calling us to not only understand these things, but to experience them. Because, it's again, if all you have is the example, you're not going to be able to do it. But it's not about the example. It's about allowing us to understand this is how we've been loved. And when I'm overwhelmed by the sense of how I've been loved, it gives me the ability to then love others with the love that I've received. So it's not just even what he did, it's who he was. And it's letting God love us in such a way that he changes us so that I, so it's not I do different things, I, I become someone different. I say, God, help me to learn to be selfless. Help me to learn to love the people that are difficult. Help me to become like Jesus, because I will, be, I will do it when I become it. He continues, he continually humbles himself, not only becomes a servant, but he who controls the universe becomes obedient. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, he's not obedient to death. We're going to see, that's not at all what it's saying. The Bible is clear. Jesus said numerous times, you know, no one takes my life. I lay it down on my own. His obedience was to the Father, and it was an obedience to death. And by, by taking death, he took our punishment. And here what you have is you have this eternal God who made all things, who came into this time-space capsule. And you see this when he's praying, you know, at the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's saying, Father, if, 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 you know, if, if there's any other way, let it be, you know, but, but your will be done. And he submitted to the will of the Father, and he showed this love towards us, humbling himself in the most amazing way. And he came to die, ultimately not only to be obedient, then ultimately this holy and eternal God embraced death on a cross. This eternal existent God somehow came and experienced death. And the death was ultimately not just the physical death of the cross, but, but as we talked about a couple weeks ago, it was a spiritual death where he literally took hell upon himself. He took God's punishment, God's wrath upon himself he, because he took our sins. And with our sins, he took God's, God's punishment for their sins. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself but became obedient to death, uh, even obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in, this, in, and in the middle of this, what we realize is that Jesus started out at a place that is so much higher than we could ever dream and was willing to let it go. And he went down to a place that's far lower than any of us will ever go in this life. Because he not only experienced, again, physical death, he literally experienced God's wrath. He took hell. He experienced a pain. He experienced something that was far worse than any of us could ever dream to experience this side of eternity. The only way that any of us will experience that is that if we reject Christ and we die in, in that rejection. But the fact is, that's what he went through. And we've got to look at that, and we've got to say, that's the example of Jesus Christ. Now, even in that, I want you to see something. Do you see, it's not that, he, that we're called here to do the things that Jesus did. It's not, you know, look at the actions of Jesus and have the same actions, but it's, no, have the same attitude. You see, what I want you to realize is that, again, it's not just that he's calling us to do, it's what he's calling us to be. 
And that's where, again, you see the distinction. Religion is about what you do. It's about here's how you perform. You know, true relationship with God is I have this relationship with God, and it's not that I do. It's that I say God changed me, and he changes who I am. So I'm not trying to do. I'm not trying to perform. I'm saying, God, you know, I agree with you. I'm selfish. I agree with you. I'm broken. And, and I, I ask you to forgive me through what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and I ask you to change me from the inside out. And when I ask him, he does that. And he makes me a different person, not all at once, but it's progressive. And I'm a different person than I was 10 years ago and 20 years ago, and I hope that I'm, I'm not near where I will be 10 years from now as I continue to just throw myself into this understanding of, of who Jesus was and what he has done for me. Now, in that, there may be some that would look at this and say, well, you know why this is hard? Because if you really do this, well, what about me? You know, what about me? Well, who's going to look out for me if all my actions are self-sacrifice? And if that's our attitude and if we're humbling ourselves, then how do, how do my needs ever get met? And that's a good question. Well, I want you to look at the last part of this, this section because it's not only telling us about what happened with Jesus, it's telling us the model of how God works. Look at, look at, um, at starting in verse 9, and you see that this, what it's teaching us is that selfless humility will lead to our own blessing. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, my objection may be if I humble myself, people are going to walk over me. And, and he says, no, look at the example of Jesus where he humbled himself and he let go. But here's what Jesus understood. If I let go of everything, the Father's going to do a better job giving me blessings and giving me glory than, than I can earn on my own. Now, if that's true of Jesus, it's true of each one of us. And here's what I want you to realize. It's not just that it's saying that the Father exalted him, and we're not going to be exalted to the highest of place because we're not going to humble ourselves the way that Jesus has. But you know what? If we humble ourselves, if we serve others, if we become other-centered, what's going to happen is that God's going to exalt us to a higher place than we could ever exalt ourselves. And going back to even this whole theme, when we talk about what is it, the joy candle, and, and what is joy, and we talk about how it's joy that we learn in, in giving and, and being other-centered, that there's joy in that. We see that secular, from secular studies, let alone from Christian teaching, and then we see it here. Do you want to understand being lifted up? Do you want to understand joy? Do you want to understand somebody doing a far better job of protecting your needs and taking care of you than you could ever take care of yourself? God says, okay, well, humble yourself, let go of your prerogatives, serve others, be other-centered, follow the example of Christ. And if you follow the example of Christ, I took care of him and I'm going to take care of you. And you're going to find in that relationship with me, in that surrender to me, in, in humbling yourselves and becoming more and more like Christ, you're going to find that I'm going to bless you. I'm going to lift you up in ways that are far greater than you could ever do for yourself. I'm going to give you the things that you want the most, the joy, the meaning, the significance, the things that you long for. That's the promise that's here. But how do we get there? What does it say there? It says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord. See, ultimately, we look at this, and it's not just something that we know what happened. Christmas, yeah, it's wonderful to talk about the birth and what it means and the incarnation and the theology, and, and that's good. It's good to know those things. 
You see, but what I want you to realize is everything here, it's not only just about knowledge. It's about experience. It's not about just what we do. It's about who we are. It's not about just following the example. It's about experiencing the love. You see, the challenge here is not only knowing, but experiencing the love of Jesus. It's, it's understanding, it's not only knowing, but it's understanding and accepting it. It's accepting that I needed to be loved, that I needed him to die on the cross for me. I needed God to intervene into my life, and because apart from God's intervention, my life is broken. And I recognize that he came, and I recognize what he's done, and I not only recognize that, but I experience it. I say, God, I, if, if you've never done this before, it starts with this prayer, just, God, I agree with you, I'm a sinner, I agree that I need you. Thank you for intervening into the, in humanity and offering to intervene in my life today. God, I, I not only believe that Jesus came and that he died on the cross, but he died for me, and I ask you to forgive my sins. I agree with you, I'm not that person that I need to be. I ask you to forgive me and to make me that person. Help me to follow you. Help me to discover the joy of following you. My friends, if you've never done that, he invites you to that relationship today. And for all of us who, for, for those of us who have done that, you see what we're called to again through this Christmas season isn't just to remember, oh yeah, Jesus was born, but be amazed at what it means. Be amazed at how he has loved you. Be amazed that God eternal came and took on human flesh and the one who marks the, you know, the, marks the heavens by the span of his hand came and lived on this little pinhead and experienced death for you and for me. And, and if we've been loved that way, that teaches us to love others in this radical way as well. So that in that, we discover the joy of generosity, of other-centeredness, of the true, the true spirit of Christmas, because it all comes from Christ. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.